eat dinner, eat lunch, eat breakfast. That's right. Well, we also have a really special meal in the church called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And on the Lord's Supper, we celebrate it every month here at Yorkfield. We eat the body and blood of the Lord, and it's a blessing for all of us to receive it. So this is a very important piece of our building, right? Let's keep walking over here. What about, what about this thing? Do you guys know what this thing is? Yeah. Cross. cross, that's right. That's right. That's a wooden cross right there. There are some others in the building too, aren't there? Kind of a cross in that stained glass window. That's right. But you know what's underneath here? Can you guys see, can you see what that is? You know what that is? You know what that holds usually? Water, that's right. There's kind of a fancy name for this. It's called a baptismal font. But it really just kind of means like a little pool. And maybe you've seen some of your brothers or sisters or maybe just other people at Yorkfield being baptized up here, right? It's a very, very special thing in the life of our church and in all. And for all Christians, Jesus himself was baptized and all Christians pursue baptism because it's a way to be regenerated, to be turned around by God. Maybe some of you remember your own baptism. Maybe you were very, very young, but some of you, I I actually got baptized when I was 14. Some people get baptized a little later in life if they maybe don't become a Christian. So these, these two things are very important. This is called the baptismal font and the Lord's table. What else what else do you notice about the church or what what other things do you see? Any other thought? Like what 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 are all these for? All these windows. Do you have windows like this in your house? No? No. Yeah, see see what's in these special little insets? You can probably read what that says. What's that say? Holy Bible, that's right. Or that there is a symbol of a fish. It's kind of an ancient symbol for Jesus. And a cross. And it goes right around the whole sanctuary. All these different pictures that symbolize for us who God is and who God's people are supposed to be. This is our biggest one though, right? You see that stained glass? What do you see on it? A big cross. Anything else? A dove. Yeah, is there a story behind that? There is? What is it? Don't remember? Yeah. It's a tricky one to remember. It, it, it's kind of a, a symbol. Like when Jesus was baptized, our Gospels tell us that the Holy Spirit descended or kind of came down on him like a dove. And so that what, that's what it's symbolizing. That Jesus was, yes, crucified on this cross, but that the Holy Spirit came down on him. And so yes, the cross is very, very important for our for our space as well. And just one last thing. Do you know what this is called here? Oh, it's called a pulpit. Can you say that with me? Pulpit. Yeah, it's kind of a hard word to say. But th- this is where we read God's word. This is a big Bible here. This is where we read God's word and we preach God's word. And we all get to hear God speak to us. 
And I know we spent all of our time at the front of the sanctuary, but don't forget that even the way this is set up, we have an organ in the back where we play music. There are pews here where everybody sits. All of this space is designed for a reason. It's all designed so we can glorify God together. We can turn toward one another in prayer. We can turn to God for healing, for truth, for wisdom, for courage to make it the next day. And so I thought it would be important for us this morning to take a quick tour and just think about what things are in our worship space and what are not. So could you pray with me as we go back to activity time or to worship? God, we give you thanks for giving us this space, this sanctuary in which to praise your name. Thank you for each one of these children, how you have called them, how you have loved them, how you have been with them since their birth until this day. Please strengthen them now as they go. Please be with their parents or caretakers. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. Thank you very much. Please join me in the prayer for illumination. O God, by your spirit, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we need to do to obey Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Today's Old Testament reading is from Exodus 24, 12 through 18. You may find it on page 70 in your Old Testament pew Bible. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me in the mountain and wait there. I will give you the tablets of stone 
with the law and commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of God settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire at the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. New Testament lesson for this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. If you wish to follow along, it's on page 44, I believe, of the New Testament portion of your pew Bible. Listen for God's word to us today. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. God. Last Wednesday, I read this same text to the fourth and fifth graders that I have the privilege to teach in our Logos Town program here at Yorkfield. And, you know, it's been a pretty good year. We've been journeying through the Ten Commandments. We're now on the Ninth Commandment. It's been interesting teaching them how to obey the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, among other things. Um, but we finally got to this ninth commandment, and I decided it might be good to take a break and hear their thoughts and comments about this rather esoteric text. So I read it to them, and one student asked, why did Moses build them tabernacles? One for Moses, one for Jesus, one for Elijah. Why not build them cars? But, oh, okay, that's an interesting thought. Another person said, why did Jesus have to talk with Moses and Elijah? Didn't he, why did he need to talk to anybody? thought that was a pretty good question. Several of the students, though, were just confused by it, which is probably the sentiment of most of us when we read or hear a text like this. At first glance, I think it is a jarring text in the flow of Mark's gospel. I mean, after all, Mark's been all about Jesus' teaching and healings. We have a slew of parables, and Jesus is 
healing Peter's mother and going and healing a garrison demoniac and healing and feeding the 5,000. Very rarely has the concern been with who Jesus actually was. It's been about what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is teaching. And when the attention does get drawn to Jesus, he's very tight-lipped about it. He's very reticent, even. In fact, when some of the demonic spirits know who Jesus is, he tells them, don't say anything. You can't say anything until after I rise from the dead. And you'll notice that's what happens here at the end of our text as well. And so at first glance, this is a bit jarring. Suddenly it's not about what Jesus is saying or doing, but something that happens to Jesus. Jesus is transfigured. There's an agent acting, God acting on Jesus. And we can perhaps imagine how Peter, James, and John would have reacted to something like this. I think for them, the text says at least, that it was both a terrifying and breathtaking moment. Peter doesn't really know what to say, so he blurts something out, but I think we've all had experiences like this, liminal moments in our lives that are surreal and sort of unrepeatable. Experiences we don't really see how decisive they are, perhaps until months or years later. One such experience for me was at my baptism. As I mentioned to the kids a moment ago, I was baptized as an adult in a Baptist church when I was 14. I can remember the day very, very well. Some aspects of it, at least. I was 14. I was wearing a crimson robe to symbolize our, 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 our death to sin and then entering the pool with a bunch of other teenagers and some young adults who were being baptized for the first time. I can remember my whole family and a number of friends were actually there. I don't remember all that the pastor asked us to affirm, but I do remember saying, I do, to all the questions, with about as much courage as I could muster at that moment. I do remember the pastor saying, Jeff, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I remember walking the steps down into the pool and being dunked and pulled out and receiving the white towel around my now drenched crimson robe and and having family and friends then a few minutes later come up and pray for us, dedicating us to God. And again, those are the aspects I can remember. I don't remember what anybody prayed. I don't even remember exactly what I affirmed, although I would say it was simply a call to discipleship, to follow Jesus, to know that I belonged to God. And yet, that was a liminal moment. That was an experience that I only could, probably will continue to see the significance of as my life rolls on. In the church of my upbringing, we didn't celebrate the transfiguration. As some of you may know, it's in the liturgical church year. It always is the Sunday before Lent begins. So it's the final part in the season of Epiphany. And we're approaching Ash Wednesday. We're approaching the season of Lent that's going to end with the capstone of Easter, celebrating Jesus' resurrection. But this is a time to think about what happened on that unnamed mountain so many years ago. A time to think about how Jesus was transfigured in a word that we maybe couldn't quite parse out, but one that Mark is just grasping to make sense of by talking about his clothes becoming dazzling white and and on and on and on. But the church in the transfiguration is celebrating the glory of God that came in the person of Jesus. The taking back of all 
humanity that happened in the person of Jesus. Sin and death no longer reign after Jesus has come, has been healed, has healed, has taught, has turned humanity back. And I think it's interesting that some of these things happen before the death, before the resurrection. Jesus does things like forgive sins, is transfigured before the death, before the resurrection. In his very life, he's doing the work of taking back humanity for good. This year, as I read Mark 9, 2-9, the assigned lectionary text for today, gospel text for today, it struck me, though, in a different way. It struck me, this year at least, that it's not just about celebrating the glory of God and the person of Jesus. It's not just about Jesus, although it all started with him. But that it wasn't just some local event that occurred on this anonymous mountain, but that the transfigured the transfiguration of Jesus opens the way for all of us to be transformed by God. I'm not saying that any of us are going to leave this room and head home and be transfigured in the way that Jesus was, but I am suggesting that God is still in the business of transforming you and me. God is still concerned for humanity to be taken back for us no longer to wallow in the powers of sin and death, which are defeated powers, but to be received, to be saved still by the power of God's transforming work. But without further ado, let's dig into the text for a minute. So Jesus takes with him his trio, you could say, of favorite disciples, Peter, James, and John. They appear in different with Jesus all alone. They get to go in Simon Peter's mother's house, you might recall, earlier in Mark. They get to follow Jesus that terrible night when he prayed, God, not my will, but yours be done, as he was nearly sweating drops of blood anticipating the crucifixion. He asked Peter, James, and John to come with him. And so similarly here, Jesus grabs Peter, James, and John, leads them up to a high mountain, And mountains in Scripture, and even in Mark, are kind of ambivalent places. We heard Nancy read Exodus, the account where Moses goes up to the mountain. He's, among other things, receiving the law, receiving revelation from God. But it's kind of a scary place. It's a vulnerable place. It's a place where you don't quite know what's going to happen. But it's a place where God meets God's people. And this was no exception. But then Mark says so plainly, he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. What an understatement, you might say. He goes on, though, grasping with language to say, Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. Perhaps he he was trying to say there's no way that a human could have done this. This had to be the supernatural work of God. And then suddenly, out of nowhere... Elijah and Moses show up. Elijah and Moses show up. Now, it's easy for us to kind of think, oh, Elijah and Moses, these are interesting characters. But for Peter, James, and John, and for Jesus, these are quintessential figures of Israel. We remember Moses, you know, littered through several of the first books of the Old Testament. Really the central figure, you might say, for the people of Israel in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
Here Moses appears. And then we have Elijah, who's also a quintessential figure, but maybe more of a representative of the prophets, who you may remember was on a different mountain, Mount Carmel, years, years ago, when he was fighting it out with the prophets of Baal, and of course was triumphant. Elijah was kind of a lone voice who always spoke God's truth, even if it was to a corrupt and feckless people. So Moses and Elijah, these, these quintessential figures of ancient Israel, suddenly appear. I mean, I can't imagine what Peter, James, and John must have been thinking. If they weren't already totally awestruck and terrified, now they must be on the floor. Then Peter, not really knowing perhaps what to do, or maybe wanting to get into the conversation, says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's not quite clear what Peter's getting at here. It seems at the very least that he doesn't know what to say, but feels the need to say something. I think we've all been there. And at the same time, wants this to last. Wants there to be some sort of permanence. Like, oh my goodness. I mean, it would be tantamount perhaps in the American experience to having George Washington and Abraham Lincoln appearing to President Obama in the Oval Office to give him a good talking to. I mean, this would have been truly remarkable, truly remarkable. Moses and Elijah didn't just appear to anybody for any reason. But then we're, set, we're told that Peter doesn't really know what to say because he's terrified. Because he's terrified. We're then told just as suddenly that a cloud overshadows them. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, that is. And from the cloud, there comes this voice. So now the disciples are kind of obscured from their view. And then this booming or serene voice comes out of nowhere and says, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Listen to him. And as astute readers of Mark's gospel, we maybe would remember when a similar voice appeared and said a somewhat similar thing. A couple years beforehand in Mark 1, we have the account of Jesus' baptism, in which Jesus is at the Jordan River, meets John the Baptist, and you may recall when he comes up out of the water, as I told the kids earlier, the, you know, the the dove descends and the Holy Spirit comes and this voice appears and says, this is my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. But there it's clear that the voice is talking to Jesus. It's probably not a public voice because it says, you are my beloved son. But in this instance, when the voice appears, it's talking to the disciples, right? Because they're saying, listen to him. Not just Jesus, you're my beloved son, know what your identity is, but listen to him. Listen to him. And then in verse 8, suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And I think this really hits home to what we typically celebrate in the transfiguration. We typically celebrate that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah get together, but the one who really is directing the conversation is Jesus. Yes, Moses was a quintessential figure, as was Elijah. God gave the law to Moses. God gave truth to Elijah to speak to the people, but Jesus surpasses them both. Jesus is Lord both of the dead, Moses, 
and the living. Elijah, who you may recall, was taken up, never experienced physical death. But again, on this Transfiguration Sunday, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if we should bring the Transfiguration home to our daily, sometimes onerous lives. Where it could not just be about what happened to Jesus, but what Jesus now does, not only for Peter, James, and John, with a few bumps along the road, we remember what happens a bit later in the gospel, but also for us. Jesus was not giving up on Peter, James, and John anytime soon. The way Mark presents it, they kind of stumble around. They don't really get it here. Right after the story, Jesus would come down the mountain, all transfigured, full of the glory of God, and here his disciples can't even cast out a demon, some, some really small thing that Jesus had equipped his disciples to do. They can't even do it. Later on, there's more stumbling as everybody denies Jesus as he goes on the road to the cross. But that's not the end of the story for Peter, James, and John. We perhaps remember that they became remarkable leaders in the church. God was still with them. God did not give up on them. And nor does God give up on us. I noticed that this verb that Mark uses, transfigure, is also used by the Apostle Paul in a couple of his letters. In Romans 12, 1-2, for example, you may remember that's kind of at the very end of Paul's very lengthy and somewhat complex argument about the faithfulness of God, despite the people of God's unfaithfulness. He's finally getting to a point where he's going to exhort them, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformed. It's probably a different valence, but it's the same word. Paul uses the same word to talk about how he's exhorting the believers in Rome to turn to God, to renew their minds. In a similar way to Jesus' transfiguration, we as his followers are called to be transformed. In one other letter of Paul's, 2 Corinthians 3, it's, it's at the very end, Paul's actually recalling this same story, probably the account in Exodus when Moses goes up to the mountain and, and his face, his face is, is, is shining with the glory of God, much like Jesus' was. But Paul says, And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. And so, on this Transfiguration Sunday, I suspect, I suspect, God may be saying that we should not only worship God, in the person of Jesus, who was transfigured on that mountain. A, a, a dazzling, an unrepeatable, a truly incredible experience. One we should treasure. One we should look to. But to not forget that God is in the business of doing the same work 
with you and me. Peter, James, and John eagerly followed Jesus up to the mountain that day, not quite knowing what would transpire. They probably didn't understand much of what actually happened when Jesus was transfigured. They may have had their mountaintop druthers, wishing and hoping that this would be the special teaching. This would be the special miracle. After all, don't forget that earlier on a mountain, Jesus had called all 12 of his disciples, including Peter and James and John. Now Jesus was going up to a mountain again, but calling three. Maybe they had made some sort of final cut. But, but, Jesus would show them something different. In my baptism so many years ago, I think I only had a glimpse of what was happening. Sure, I can remember those words. The pastor said this, I was wearing this colored robe. But I think in my baptism, God was claiming me as God's own. In my baptism, God was affirming a call to discipleship, a call to repentance, a call to renewal. And now, as I think about it, perhaps a call to do parish work. In my baptism, God was at work in ways to transform me that I could never imagine. It's remarkable how many times I return to the moment of my baptism in my mind when I'm indifferent, when I just feel in a period of upheaval. I remember that God was with me, actively transforming me. My mom still says it was a pivotal moment in my life. I was, I was quite feisty with my brother. I was quite willful. And even though, again, I didn't really know what was happening, I trust that God was at work to transform me in my baptism. I believe God is still at work transforming you and me God has not given up on us, despite our best efforts, despite our pettiness, despite our confusion. God is still taking the initiative, prompting us to offer ourselves to him, to the only one who satisfies, to the only one who can truly transform. As we turn the corner in the liturgical calendar to begin Lent in a few days, Perhaps we need to hear the call anew to offer ourselves to God. To offer our bodies and minds to the only one who can transform us. To offer our time, talents, and resources as a part of our worship. Wherever we are, wherever we've been, we can offer ourselves to God this morning. Marveling at the transfiguration of Jesus, but also opening ourselves to that same transforming work of God that God promises to do for us. The old hymn by Francis Havergal sums it up better than I ever could. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let it sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and muse every 
power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. It is a privilege to be able to share joys and concerns from our own congregation with one another. God calls us to hear and bear and pray for one another, for the church, and for the world. So now let me share a couple with you, and then I'll give an opportunity for others to name some before we pray. Two joys. Anita Walker shares that CAT scan results of earlier this week show no tumor on her lungs. This is very good news indeed. She will have chemo Friday, February 20th. I guess that was last Friday. And then if blood counts stay okay, again on March 13, then she will have a long-awaited chemo break. So we praise God for this favorable news. Another joy is that session and staff are on retreat, or perhaps a concern. <laughs> Get it. Um, joy and concern, I should say. Um, both session and staff are on retreat this weekend in Michigan, and we do remember them in our prayers and praise God for the opportunity for them to discern what we are doing, where we are going, and where we are headed next. A few concerns as well to add. Jeff Reddick's brother Mark was diagnosed, pardon me, was discovered to have a significant tumor in his chest cavity while visiting the Mayo Clinic for an unrelated matter this week. We remember to keep him, his wife Marilyn, and son Luke in our prayers. Nancy Wilson is having an outpatient procedure on this past Friday. We haven't heard how it went, but she'll rest over the weekend and be back to work on Monday. Prayers are indeed appreciated. Are there other joys or concerns you would share with us? Well, let's pray together. I invite, if you are willing or feel comfortable, perhaps an expression of our offering ourselves to God, to open your palms or lift your hands, perhaps, for part or all of our prayer together. God of all goodness, we give you thanks for the sacredness of this day, of this service of worship, of this opportunity to all pray together to groan for those who are hurting, to rejoice with those who have favorable news, to hear your word, to sing praises to you for who you are and what you're doing, to remind ourselves that you are for us, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. How can we but thank you for being such a gracious and compassionate God. And yet, how can we but ask you, as a gracious and compassionate God, for help, for help to be your disciples day in and day out, 
to go to work or search for it, to care for those in our lives, family or friends, to open ourselves to those whom we don't know, to strangers, to enemies. How can we but ask you for wisdom and courage for what we should do, how we should negotiate our time that you've given us, the talents you've given us, the resources you've given us. Help us to hear from you and be guided by your direction. We do offer ourselves to you, O oh God, on the eve of Lent, remembering how you turned your face toward Jerusalem and did not turn back, remembering that you call us to do a similar thing and taking up our crosses and daily following you. We remember on this Transfiguration Sunday all the other places in the world where you are being worshipped. We pray for the mission of the global church, that it would be strengthened, that it would be a mainstay of your truth, that it would be sensitive to the cultures in which it is embedded. That it would be open to other segments of the church. We pray in particular for Yorkfield as we enter Lent, as staff and session are on retreat, as we do long-range planning and think about who God is calling us to be in the next few years. We want it to be your plan, God. So help us to hear and obey. We do rejoice and thank you for the good news of Anita Walker this week and for our session and staff who are on retreat and for the good news of Joshua's continuing recovery. Please bless those who care for all who are in need. We remember, too, the concerns of Jeff Reddick's brother, Mark, the devastating news and those who will care for him, Jeff, Marilyn, and Luke. We bring before you Nancy Wilson and Father Paul Collins. Please surround them, God, with your grace, with your comfort, with your healing. Fill them with hope in this time that could be battered with hopelessness. Open us, God, to being your agents of reconciling love in this world. We offer ourselves to you, praying the prayer that Christ taught us together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen.
on this Transfiguration Sunday, remember that God is for you. That God is still in the business of transforming you and me when we offer ourselves to God. From Monday to Friday, from Saturday to Sunday, God is with us. God is calling us to offer ourselves to him. Now may the blessing of Almighty God be with you, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever.